Thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be this morning. You know, we've been in the book of Acts for uh, for a while. In fact, this is the 55th message in the book of Acts. And so uh, if you are visiting with us this morning, uh, your tendency is to think, wow, I'm way behind. Well, here's the good thing. If you, if you just give me a call, we'll go to lunch and I'll catch you up on 54 messages over lunch. And you'll, be, you'll be just fine. Now, we've been moving through this book slowly. I enjoy preaching through passages or through uh, books of scripture. Uh, I enjoy preaching topical stuff. We did a series on unforgiveness a few months back and uh, done series and different topics along the way. But I really, really enjoy preaching through books of the Bible. I think that's the greatest way to get a comprehensive look of why things are, are where they are in scripture, why God says certain things, because you are able to read the scriptures in context. So we've been going through the book of Acts now for a while. And uh, this morning, Acts chapter 19 is, uh, is where we are, kind of picking up after taking a little bit of a redirection through the Christmas holidays, back today in Acts chapter 19. Before we jump in and uh, look at what we're going to be looking at this morning in this passage, let me just take a moment to pray that uh, God would use this time and that he would uh, drive it into our lives to apply it in the way that, that we need. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, a word that has endured uh, through the centuries. Lord, uh, you even told us your word would never pass away. And that has proven to be true. And so we pray as we open it today that we wouldn't just read it, but Lord, that you'd use it to read our lives. And Lord, we're going to look at a, uh, at a challenging topic this morning, one that every single one of us as believers needs to, needs to examine. And we need to examine our hearts and our lives and take inventory of our walks with you. And so we pray today, Lord, all I can do is, is, is proclaim it. I pray that you'd help me to do that the best that I can. But Lord, only you can speak to a heart. And so we pray that you'd bring conviction, that you'd uh, just unfold this, this passage and your truth uh, in a way that makes... Uh, not only makes sense, but Lord can make a difference in our lives. And so we thank you for what you'll do during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can imagine being a part of the, uh, of the advance of the gospel in the book of Acts. It, it, is, it is an interesting book. If you've ever read book, the book of Acts before, you've already learned what we've been seeing through this series is that Acts is an interesting book. That whenever you look at it, even in where it's placed in Scripture, that it's there for a reason. If you, if you take, uh, took the book of Acts out of your Bibles... And if you just uh, cut it out, removed it, then it would be like shifting from fifth back to first gear again. Because you'd come through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'd read about the ministry of Jesus, and then you'd jump all the way into a book called Romans. And if you jump from the Gospels into Romans, your first question would be, well, who is this person, Paul, that's writing the book of Romans? And, and, and why is it talking about all this doctrine that I don't have really much of a foundation for? And the book of Acts is a transition in Scripture. It helps us to understand how the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, makes a difference in everyday life. And so the book of Acts is extremely important. And what we find there at times, at times, not every time, but at times we'll see instances where there were things that happened in the first century that are captured in the book of Acts that did not happen all the time. They were not normative. In fact, they don't even happen much today still. And today is going to be an example of that. We're going to see an extreme passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 19. It would be almost comical if it wasn't so serious. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, you're going to see an example of, of how God worked at this particular instance, in this experience, in this point in time, and we're going to draw from it, not a pattern to where we can try to apply the same thing exactly as it, as it occurred originally, but we're going to draw out a principle that's going to be a benefit for us as we see what happens here in this experience in Acts chapter 19. Now here's the challenge for us, that we live in, the, in a completely different day. We live in the 21st century that has its own challenges in its own right that are a bit different from the challenges of the first century. One of the greatest challenges for us as Christians today is that we often, in light of the tremendous blessings that God has given us, in light of the way he's moved in our lives and what he's done for us, is that we have a tendency as believers, if we're honest with ourselves, to become very complacent in our faith. 
We have a real tendency to take what God has done for us and to, to, uh, to marginalize not only His work, but also even Him in our lives to the point to where we as Christians are more than glad to experience the blessings of the Christian life, but we don't necessarily want God to be the center of everything about us. We want Him to find His place. We want Him to bless us. We want Him to show up whenever we need him, but we may not want him necessarily to be at the center of our walk or of our life or of our finances or of our work or of our relationships or of every other area of our lives. And it almost comes to this place to where we have a split personality in our relationship with God to where we are one person in one place, but a different person in another place. And we want God to be one thing here, but we want him to be another thing over here. And it's a challenge that has racked the ministry of, 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 the, of the advance of the, of the gospel in the 21st century to where we see today churches just like this, filled with people just like us, who know how to name the name of Christ, but the reality of his presence is often nowhere to be found. Surely, as the gospel would advance through the book of Acts, and as miracles would be performed, and as God's power would be put on display in dramatic fashion, surely there would come a time when somebody would get a glimpse of that and say, if I could only somehow harness that, I could use it for my own benefit and be well off as a result of it. Surely there would come a person in the book of Acts that as God's power was on display, moving in miraculous fashion, consistently, lives being changed, surely there would be a person that would come along that would say, if I could just take that and apply it to my own life, not so that I'd be closer to God, but so that I could demonstrate his power, boy, I could be a benefit for me. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 19. In fact, it had already happened in Acts chapter 8. If you remember... When we were there, there was a fellow named Simon. He was a sorcerer. He was involved in, in magic. He was involved in things that the Old Testament had spoken very, very strongly against. And in Acts chapter 8, you may remember Simon the sorcerer. He saw Peter and John, two of the apostles, who had, uh, who had been a part of God's work. And uh, Simon the sorcerer came to Peter and John. They said, hey, he basically said, hey, I've seen what you've done. I've seen how, how you're able to, uh, to, to do work for God and the Holy Spirit comes upon people. Hey, what, how about if I give you guys some money and you all just help me to learn how to do that? It actually happened, Acts chapter 8. And, and Peter had some pretty strong words for him. Uh, basically, you could die with your money if you want, but you better get right with God or else you're going to suffer tremendously. That's kind of basically the Brooks version of what Peter had to say to him. See, he wanted just enough of Jesus to be dangerous for his own good, but he didn't want enough of God to be able to actually walk closely with him. And that's what we're going to see again in Acts chapter 19, another occurrence of it. And it's a dramatic occurrence that shows us the reminder that we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to treat Jesus just like a ticket to be used. In fact, let me give you the principle that we're going to look at this morning, and then we'll begin to unpack it just a bit. And I'd be willing to say that for some of us, this could be a real challenge for us in our walks with God, if not perhaps the most important message that you'll hear this whole entire year as a Christian. And the principle is this, is that Jesus is not a ticket to be used but he is a savior. He's a savior. He is the savior for every one of us to worship, for us to follow, but for us to know. You know, you probably have in your possession from certain events that you've attended tickets that have a symbolic meaning, but they have no real value beyond that. 
Maybe it was a ball game you went to when you were a kid. Maybe you made a trip to a specific stadium that was in your bucket list and you always wanted to go to, you know, to this particular stadium or to see this specific team play or this particular player. And you still have a remnant of that ticket, but that ticket is useless to you. Or maybe it was a concert that you went to. Or maybe you even hold in your hand right now a ticket that you've already purchased for an event that's coming up. If that's the case, you hold in your hand that ticket that is not yet used that carries great value. And say, for example, there's a person coming to town that you want to see in concert, uh, whoever that may be for you, I don't know, Barry Manilow or whoever that might be. We need to pray for you if that, okay. So you've got a ticket all right, in your hand, and, uh, and that ticket is already purchased for an event that's coming up, all right? Say you've paid 120 bucks to be on the front row down at the Civic Center. You want to be right there in the lights. You want, you want the spit to fall on you while they're singing. You want to be right there for the experience. That ticket carries immense value. You've already paid for it. And if you lose it and you go back and say, Mr. Civic Center person, I lost my ticket. Can I have another? They're going to say, no. That's 120 bucks that are, that's gone. That ticket has great value until it's used. And once it's used, it's useless. It carries no value. In fact, they keep half of it when you come to the door, right? You only leave with half of the thing to begin with. You paid 120 bucks for that thing. You only get to keep half of it. It is useless after it has been used. Here's what often happens, and follow me on this. We as, a, as Christians often, in this culture in which we live, surrounded by so much blessing in this 21st century, we have a, a, a very dangerous tendency, and churches just like this have a very dangerous tendency of looking at Jesus exactly like that ticket to where we only come to him when we want something from him. And dare I use this analogy, it is almost as though we take a relationship with God and we turn it into an act of prostitution where we only come to Jesus when we want something, when we need something, and we say, Lord, will you just please give me this, bail me out of this, provide for this particular need, and once he gives it, we cast him aside until we need him again. You know, God, I'd really like this promotion at work. You know, I've been going to church. I know you're taking role. I've been going to church for five weeks now in a row. I really need this promotion. My family needs the food. And there's a sweet car down at the dealership that I really, really want. So God, please just give me this promotion. You know, I, you know, I need it. We get the promotion. Bam. Gone. Ticket. To be used. Not a savior. To be known. And it happens all the time. It happened in Jesus' ministry. John chapter 6. Remember that event when Jesus fed the 5,000? You talk about miracles. Man, there it was. 5,000 people. Little boy, a little bit of food, bunch of people. 5,000 plus, plus women, plus children. So there were thousands that were there that day. And Jesus takes what was given to him. He miraculously, pray, he prays to the Father, miraculously distributes enough food for everybody to, be, to, to eat. And to be filled. 12 basketfuls left over. 12 disciples collected it up. Even they got filled up. Isn't that awesome? And that's just God covers every single base. Well, then what happens after that, you may remember, is that the disciples leave. And they go across the sea. Jesus doesn't go with them, but he comes to them in the night. Walking on water. Remember that? That was the context. Of it. Jesus walks on water, meets up with the disciples. Everybody wakes up the next morning. Where's Jesus? We want Jesus. Well, John chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. John chapter 6 kind of frames it for us. Here's what happens it says So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. That's commendable. They were looking for Jesus until we find out what they were looking for. Verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
See, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't know how that story was unfolding, that he walked on the water and all those things. So verse 26, Jesus answered them and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. (laughs) You, You don't want me. You just want another buffet is what you're looking for. Later on in that chapter, John chapter 6, Jesus says, speaking in, in, in an analogy, he says some really, really strong things about what it meant to walk with him in relationship. He said it, it is likened to eating his own flesh and drinking his own blood. Now we hear that today and we think, Woo, what's that all? They would have understood. He said, if you want to be a part of, of, of a relationship with me, you don't dabble with me. It's, it, it's, it's as though you are consumed by me and I am consumed by you. It's all in. Just listen what happens later in John chapter 6 when he starts talking that way. It says, as a result of this, many of his disciples, not the 12, but those that were following him, they withdrew and they were not walking with him anymore. It's almost as though you can hear him say, Yo, Lord, we see these miracles. Man, that, is, that, that is incredible. That is awesome. People, if we could just hang with you for a while, people will begin to identify us with you, and, and, and we're, we're going to be elevated in the way people look at us. Power, you're talking about kingdoms to come and all this kind of stuff. Man, we are all in, Lord. This is good stuff. And, and multiplying, provision, and blessing, cha-ching. Hey, we're in. This is good. This is good. We'll follow you anywhere. But then you start talking about this stuff, about eating your flesh and drinking your blood, and, and it's all in, into the deep end, following you with everything. That's, that's not what we pictured. You being a master and a Lord, we don't want that. And it said that day, John 6, many withdrew from him and they weren't following him anymore. And so we get to Acts chapter 19 and we see a dramatic event that unfolded that's unique in this setting in Acts 19. And just as was in Jesus' ministry, just as it is today, it reminds us that for many, even Christians, Jesus is nothing more than a ticket to be used rather than a savior to be known. He's not a, he's not a sales tactic to throw out there on the table to get a sale. He's not a, he's not a political campaign slogan to throw out there to get a certain voter block. That's not who he is. Jesus is not to be used for our own individual advantage in a hypocritical manner in which our hearts are not engaged with him. He is not a free pass to more money. He's not a free pass to more, to, to, to more wealth, to greater health. You know, the, the, the health and wealth gospel today has just absolutely obliterated the heart of the true gospel. It just has. To where people, not only in this country, but all over the world, come to Jesus only because they want to get healed or they want more money or whatever. They, many of them have obviously true hearts for God and they have responded to Christ and surrender, but the message is if you want something, come to him. And it's prostituted the gospel. It's prostituted what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 19, we find that the gospel has made its way in the first century to the city of Ephesus. Paul brought it there. God used the Apostle Paul to share the gospel there in Ephesus. And there were a number of things that would happen in this city that were dramatic in fashion. We're about to read one of them. But the, the, the bottom line was that the gospel was spread. 
And people came to Jesus genuinely in the city of Ephesus. Well, as we pick up in verse 11 and we read through this short passage we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see another example of of a group of people that saw Jesus only merely as a ticket to be used. And they had no desire to follow him as Lord. And so pick up with me here, Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. It says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Listen to this. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Now that is an interesting couple of verses just to start with. All right, you got your seatbelt on now, right? It's going to get a, we're going to gain speed here in just a second. That's a seatbelt buckler, just to kind of clue you in. So let me just read that passage again. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. For some reason, God chose to act in that setting, in that specific point in time, in this dramatic fashion. However, this experience is not normative for how God works still today. There is nowhere else in the New Testament of which I am aware where God chooses to, 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 to lead in that specific way, to, to act in that way. Now, he'll tell us to pray for those who are sick. He'll tell us that we are to lift them up to the Lord, that we're to pray for their healing, that we can trust that God is a God who chooses to heal on many, many, many occasions. But we don't see this specific formula put in place anywhere else in the New Testament. For some reason, God chose to act in this unique, extraordinary, dramatic way. I remember when I was, years ago, I I had to go to the ER. I had, uh, I think it was like a blood sugar thing or something, and I almost passed out, or I did pass out, and they took me to the ER, and the ambulance came, and I went. And I remember being in the the ER, and my pastor at the time that I was serving with came to visit me, and it was like one in the morning. And I I still specifically remember, this is probably, I don't know, mid-90s or so, early 90s, 15, 20 years ago. And I still remember, it was like one in the morning, and there was this guy on TV. I think Reverend Ike, does that ring a bell? He said to put your hand out and touch the TV to receive the gift of money. <laughs> I was like, you have got, you got to be kidding me. I mean, if you're related to Reverend Ike, forgive me, but that's just the truth. That is just a crock. I'm sorry. I mean, where do we even see that in Scripture? It's like the letters you get in the mail that say, hey, if you want to receive this prayer cloth, you know, I'm going to send you this prayer cloth, and this prayer cloth will rid you of all your disease and bring you great blessing in the next 90 days. No, 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 that is not the case. That is not the way that God operates. It's not the aprons, it's not the handkerchiefs, it's not that at all. It's the power of God demonstrated in his choice in this context in Acts chapter 19. And what we often do is we tend to look at this kind of stuff and we think, man, that is awesome. If I could just somehow package that and kind of leverage it and work my way into this, I could use that to really, really benefit myself. And people do it all the time under the context of religion or even Christianity. And so for some reason, God chose to work this way. Some would say this is a, an, an example of the superstitions of the people in Ephesus. I don't believe that's the case. I mean, they may have been superstitious people. I'm sure they were because they were a pagan, pagan people that had not, most of them had not yet come to Christ. But this paints a picture for me that whatever Paul wore was brought, and there were people that were healed, and there were people that were delivered from the presence of evil spirits as a result of it. God chose to work in this fashion. And yet, sure enough we find a counterfeit. Someone willing to say, if I could get just enough of Jesus to do that, I could be set. And so let's continue. 
Verse 13, it says, but also some of the Jewish exorcists, we don't understand them to be Christians. It doesn't say anything about them being believers. They were Jewish in heritage, but they had not made the choice apparently to follow Christ. Some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, they attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches... They could not even attribute Christ to their own life. They had to say, I adjure you by the Jesus that this person, Paul, preaches. Now, this is interesting. Picture this. you got a group of people who claim to be able to remove evil spirits from others. Scriptures speak of demons, they're real, hell is real, the enemy, Satan is real. We don't fear him, greater is he who is in you, the Bible says, as a Christian than he who is in the world. But these were people who were in this for their own gain. And they go from place to place, and as they meet people who seem to be indwelt by evil spirits, they, they say, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. They give us an example in verse 14 of of this, seven to be example. It says, seven sons of one Sceva. That's hard to say seven times fast, by the way. Seven sons of one Sceva. A Jewish chief priest were doing this. Here's where it gets interesting. Verse 15, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. Man, you talk about a moment when you realize, I think I've gone a little too far here. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? It's, it's about to get ugly. They hear the name of Jesus, they see the power of God demonstrated, and they begin to initially think, this could be good for us. Why? Because Jesus is merely a ticket to be used. He was not a savior to be known. And so they come to this person and dwelt by an evil spirit, these seven sons of Sceva, and they come to him and they pronounce to the evil spirit to depart, and the evil spirit calls their bluff and he says, I've heard of Jesus and I know well who Paul is, but who on this earth are you? And look at what it says happened next. And the men, verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on all of them. He subdued all of them. Remember, there were seven of them. And he overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Imagine standing on the street corner when that thing unfolded. (laughs) This fellow comes flying out of the house and you're thinking, what on earth just happened inside there? I I heard David Platt, he's a pastor in Birmingham, preach a message some time ago that dealt with this this particular passage. And i got to share this because I think it's so applicable. He he said, you may remember this, when you were in middle school, remember when there'd be like the big fight out behind the school? You remember that? And, uh, you know, everybody would gather up because there's going to be this big fight out behind the school. Hey, man, they're going to be fighting after school. Get everybody going to meet up. There'd be this big circle and there'd be a big fight. But when it was over, you never really knew who won. It was just a bunch of this, you know, and nobody really fighting, just a bunch of grappling, you know, just grabbing each other. Nobody really knew who won. If you're in a fight, and you go into that fight, and you've got clothes on. <laughs> and when that fight's over, you don't got any clothes on anymore. You lost. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's just kind of done at that point. And so God sets this whole thing straight, you know. He just deals with it. And he lets unfold what happens. Listen, when we treat Jesus like a ticket for our good rather than the Savior, 
who's worthy of everything that we are. And so what about you? Where are you in all this? Is Jesus a ticket for you that you only use to your own advantage, or is he a God willing to be followed no matter the cost? Let me just ask a few questions just to walk you through this. You answer these in the quietness of your heart just to give you a backdrop against evaluating this as to how you view Jesus. Do you only come to Christ whenever you have a need in your life, a need to be bailed out or a need to have a need, a need that needs to be met? Do you only come to Jesus when there is a desire that you want fulfilled, something that you would, would like to have for yourself? Is that the only time that you come to him? Then he may just be only a ticket for you. Do you only read your Bible? Do you only pray? Do you only come to church so that he'll keep the blessings flowing in your life so that he won't maybe bring something bad as opposed to bringing something good as though you know, he's, he operates that way because he doesn't? He disciplines out of love. But do you only do these things, praying and reading Scripture, coming to church? Do you only do those just to keep him happy, just to keep him blessing you, keeping him on your side for your own advantage, that he might just be a ticket for you? Would what you profess on Sunday be completely dismissed by those who know you Monday through Saturday? Would it be laughed off in the workplace, in your circles of friends and influence, your family? Would it be completely brushed aside and even mopped and laughed over? <laughs> you? <laughs> if what you professed on Sunday was named Monday through Saturday, then he might just be a ticket for you. Do you only give so that you can get? Ticket. Do you only serve so that you can be seen? Do you only sing in a choir, teach a class, stand at a doorway so that people can see and think, wow, that's, a, that's an impressive person. Just a ticket. <laughs> but if he is, if he's the God that you need, and if you know he's your only hope in this world, and if you follow him because at the point in time when you needed a savior most, there was only one with his hand raised that was worthy and it was him. And if you follow him because at your deepest, darkest moment, he has been there. And at your greatest point of victory, you know it was only because of him. And if you follow him because he's your creator and because he is the only one true living God, he is Lord of your life and that you will follow him through thick and thin regardless because he is always good. He is always faithful. If that's why you follow him, then you understand the beauty of relationship with God. And so is he just merely a ticket that you use and discard once it's done? And you come running back to him the next time you have a need, and when the need is fulfilled, you just run off again? Or are you walking with him in relationship, in the beauty of what it means to walk by grace? We can't miss the contrast here of these seven men who wanted enough of Jesus for their own good but had no desire for a master, standing up against the Apostle Paul who left everything to follow him. These seven sons are mentioned once in Scripture, and yet Paul's impact extends even to us because as he took the gospel, it ultimately, through his efforts, made its way here.
to you and to me. So what difference does it make? Whether Jesus is a ticket or a savior, it makes all the difference in the world. And for you, it just may make all the difference between God's judgment and forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, I know here this morning, in this place filled with people, that every one of us is at a different place, perhaps, in where we stand before you. There are a lot, I'm sure, who are here that have a genuine relationship with you. But yet the tendency here in these recent days or months or maybe even years has been to focus upon you only when in need, only when we want something as opposed to following you as the Savior and God, our Creator, our Lord, our Master, the one we need. And Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction to our lives as believers where we've missed it and where we've only seen you as a ticket to be punched and then discarded. Lord, you didn't come and you didn't die on a cross and you didn't experience all that we were that we should have experienced for us to treat you that way. Lord, a relationship with you is something to be taken seriously. And Lord, we can't help, we can't miss the simple fact that wrapped up in a relationship with you is joy and is hope and is peace and is purpose, victory. And so Lord, we miss so much when, we're, when we relegate you to just the point of being a ticket as opposed to being our master and our savior and our Lord. And so I pray for Christians all over this place today, Lord, who somehow have become misaligned in the way that they look at you, Lord Jesus, that you would do work that I can't. I can only speak it, but only you can change a heart. Only you can convict. And I pray you do that. But God, I also pray for those this morning who are in need of that Savior. Lord, they've never come to you. They've never come to Christ. They've tried everything else that this world has to offer. And yet there's still an ache. There's still a small voice in the back of their heart that seems to scream out that they are not right with you. And Father, today I know that they can leave this place if they're only willing to come to Jesus in repentance, turning from their sin, falling upon you, Lord Jesus, inviting you in to take over, that they can leave here forgiven and right with you, O oh God. Lord, I thank you that you don't call us to do before you call us to be. And Lord, I pray that for each of us that we would simply be yielded and surrendered to you for who you are. Whatever decisions we need to make today to get there, God, help us to make them in these next few moments. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's